Okay. Uh, well, thanks for doing this. No, no, um, it's good. Exciting. Exciting. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Are you okay just if we sort of just jump in? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm easy going. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Unfinished Unpublished for 2021. My name's Emma Anderson and my guest this week is Michael McHugh. He works for Tyne Weir Archives and Museums alongside being involved with and running lots of other projects. These include volunteering for the Star and Shadow, promoting gigs, running a record label and starting the Tyneside Sound Society, which involves a diverse group of enthusiasts coming together to capture the sounds of the North East. I'd highly recommend having a look at the show notes and following the links to some of Mike's work, in particular the video of the psychic readings he organised at the Shipley Art Gallery for a project called Beyond the Museum, which he will be telling me about in a moment. If you want to get in touch about the show, I'd love to hear from you via email on unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at TrueBaggleRag. I'm fortunate in my work in the museum that I've got a really good line manager that I've had okay. for the last few years and, and she's like allowing me to like experiment with things and then well, we could talk about that later. Yeah, no, I was, so this was actually tying in quite well to one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, which was an example of a project that you did get finished, which is called Beyond the Museum, Chaos, Magic, Local History and Occult Data Collection. Yes. And I read the article you sent me about that project and yeah. it was brilliant because it started off as this the story about essentially kind of redoing or reopening a local collection from a re- museum that had closed and then by the end of the article you were talking about chaos magic psychic readings ESP data collection <laughs> could you just tell me what you did so some people have said that I, I kind of a bit of a maverick within the museum hmm. and then I I'm like I kind of push things a little bit because museums generally work in a very particular way they are very whether they like to think it or not, they're very conservative institutions. Mm. And I mean that in the sense, not really politically, but they're conservative in the fact they like they like to preserve and keep things safe. Yeah. So they and this isn't a criticism of other people who work in the museums, but it attracts a it attracts a particular kind of personality. And I'm not that kind of personality. And that's so that's not me saying people are good or bad. Yeah. But um to tell the story of that and to be quick about it, because I'll go off at tangents, so please keep keep interrupt and keep me right. Um, there was a point about like 2015 where I'd, you know, I'd been at the museum for like about 10 years. Yeah. And it's a relatively small metropolitan local authority museum service mm. that, that represents about nine different galleries, museums and what have you, archi- an archive service. And there was a number of other staff from across the service who'd been there the same amount of time who, who wanted to do different things yeah. and explore collections and how we engage, how we do stuff with people. There was about six of us and we set up this thing that we called TNT, mm. which which stands for Try New Things. It was <laughs> an intentionally stupid name. It was a little bit subversive and a way of, encouraging all staff to come together and generate new ideas and we would play a lot of games and 
we found a little bit of money for people to test out ideas. This was all stuff. Yeah. You could be a cleaner, front of house, curator, manager, whoever. And the six of us who started it, I suppose we're all of a particular, like, we all had um, a generosity and a confidence. And essentially it, it was probably a way of like working out like an editorial for a program that involves a lot more people that's outside of the usual kind of hierarchies. So we would play a lot of games where, like card games, where you would have lists of themes and then a list of collaborators and then a, a set of rules. So yeah. imagine you've got like a deck of cards and you would have all the, and then, or you'd also have a, a venue or a collection yeah. within the service because we've got like millions of objects and kilometres of archives, records. So we would have all this stuff where like, it was almost like pure free association where you'd say list a load of, I mean, nothing, I don't, nothing's random, but you would list a load of collaborators where you'd have like, say you'd, you'd say bin men or mm-hmm. crime scene investigators or opera singers or um, psychics or whatever. And then you would, ha- you'd have a theme and then a rule. So a rule might be, uh, must be experienced in the dark or must be experienced in motion we would work with other staff and you would play these games and set people in little groups and they would have to quickly come up with an idea. And it was a way of, essentially TNT was like an R&D thing. We would ask people to propose projects Mm -hmm. with a small amount of money. So you've got all sorts of things happening where like a front of house person wanted to Mm. do a project called Time Kitchen where she would cook historical recipes and then we would dress up as chefs like I helped, uh, like me and the other sort of core original members of the TNT like started yeah. off, we were almost like editors really or facilitators. So anyway, we, we were, there was that mindset brewing and TNT lasted for about three years and there's some really good stuff happening with it and it just sparked a lot of creativity. It was the most mm. creative period I've had in the museum. And then a number of other things were happening where I ended up kind of accidentally curating and designing this permanent gallery at the Shipley yeah. Art Gallery in Gateshead. Nobody had any really good ideas to how to work with this this particular exib- permanent exhibition. The Shipley was dedicated to a museum yeah. that, that's not there anymore that was in Gateshead called the Saltwell Park Museum. It was, it was essentially Gateshead's version of like an aristocratic cabinet of curiosities or something that every, everything everything would represent a different bit of the world and it was very mm. of its time as well it existed from like 1933 okay. to 1969 closed down and then all its its collection of objects got dispersed i just i, I kind of within the tnt group we used to just joke a lot about ideas and generally i would be this like at the museum i've changed a bit now but i would just say things i would do things and say things to really just wind people up just to try and like help yeah. us think differently. So I said, you know, I used to joke that I would, you know, let's just get, we'll just get a psychic in. Let's get a psychic in and do live <laughs> psychic object handling because within museums, we have this, you know, we tell we tell stories about objects, but a lot of objects that were in this Saltwell Park Museum yeah. Gallery at the Shipley, they just didn't have any history. They just didn't have any provenance, if you're using like a, yeah. a museum word. Nobody knew really where they were from. You know, you know what the thing is physically to look at, but they don't have any, they didn't have any documentation like data. So why don't we just make it up? <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of, it's interesting from the point of view of just interpretation. Yeah. 
But that idea had just hung around for ages and it was like a joke. And then I got the opportunity to do it <laughs> because I got a bit of money. I was on this program with the Museums Association called Transformers. Mm. I was given a bit of money, not much money, to like just test out new ideas. Yeah. So I just did lots of projects that were like flash tests. <laughs> and one of them was start, starting off the Tyneside Sound Society. And then one of them was this thing called Beyond the Museum. When we finished this gallery, it's kind of like a free association of objects. And it was only thinking about what we'd done afterwards that I started to interpret this thing about like chaos magic and just thinking about magical thinking. Because one of my friends came in with me when we finished it and he just said, this is pure surrealism. Yeah. Like it isn't like a cabinet of curiosities. I kind of hate that kind of thing. But my friend walked, we walked around it together and he said, it's a pure cosmic egg. You know, Max Ernst and the Surrealists would just love it because you, your mind would start doing different things, looking at the kind of strange connect. You would start looking for connections okay. in the objects yeah. because there were no there were no object labels in this gallery. Okay, there's a bit of interpretation on a screen, but it's quite like discreet. There are no labels with the objects. It was 2018 when I did it, and there was a point. It was right after Christmas, and there's always a lull within museums like January, February, mm. and I had this money. And I was struggling with sort of, I struggled to get motivated. Mm. And this is like links to kind of unfinished, unpublished yeah. thing. I'll sit with ideas for a long time. Yeah. But then there's a spark. And I'm like what you call an idler, really, where there's like 75% of the time I'm just bone idle. But then that 25% when I get down to things, I feel like, like my energy is like a nut, like a crazy level that that compensates for the seventy five percent time when I'm just lying about doing nothing, and I kind of, it was the first week back after Christmas twenty eighteen, mm. and I kind of said right, let's do this. I'm just because I'm I'm putting it off, this psychic thing, and you know you laugh about funny ideas and like like let's just do let's just do yeah. it, and the first, I typed in psychics northeast into Google, and then the first person that I got. She like she advertised herself as as a, as a psychic, you know what I mean, and she would do this yeah. stuff. And I know that there's lots of ethical stuff that we could talk about relating to psychics yeah. and things. But anyway, I just rang this woman up and I told her about my idea that I wanted to do. They call it I can't remember what they call it now. There's a name for psychics who just hold objects and stuff. Mm. I can't remember what it's called. And I proposed to her that I bring out a load of objects from this Saltwell Park Museum gallery or the old from the old museum mm. that didn't have any documentation or provenance yeah. and that she would do this like oh I've got to find what, what it's called. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter. People will get yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, anyway I'll bring some objects out and I want her to tell me about its history, about like just from uh, her psychic mm-hmm. abilities. I kind of position myself from a in a, within a neutral position. Like I didn't want to too, I didn't want to be skeptical about yeah. what she did, but I didn't believe it, so I, I was I was neutral within it. So anyway, miraculously, she she was up for it, and she didn't want any money. Okay. So yeah, we we got her in, and then I, and I kind of worked with some like people that I knew at the museum, and the museum at the university, we were experimenting with something that they call mythogeosonics, like Tim Shaw and John Bowers, and they do a lot of things where they kind of capture. They sonify data from things. As an example, say that if they got a stone, 
they would attach things to it that would that would generate sound from that stone or that thing. Yeah. So they did a lot of stuff where they kind of um, sonified data from these objects as well, and they mm-hmm. they kind of performed live as this uh, psychic, she's called Susan, mm. kind of did this live object reading. It was a really <laughs> interesting event. And it was this thing about like having ideas or unfin- un- not finishing things. Yeah. This psychic idea had been dormant for like, you know, yeah. f- for, for a long time. And then it was it was quite an, an unreal experience. You can watch it online yeah. if you search for Beyond the Museum, Shipley Art Gallery on YouTube and the whole event's there. Great. <laughs> So anyway, I'm waffling on Emily. No, no, you're not. Um, a couple of questions, well, loads of questions actually from that. I guess question one would be relating to the unfinished thing. Do you have any sense of why things do kind of remain dormant? Is it like a time thing or about being too ambitious? It's it's fair for me. Okay. Like, because, you, you know, you sent me a load of questions and I, I was interested in this thing about unfinished and unpublished. Yeah. But then as I was starting to look at it and look at what I've done I don't think I am a serial unfinisher yeah but it's like there's there's a fear and an anxiety of starting things yeah because it's like it's like being stood on the edge of a pool mm. if you and you and you're kind of you're nervous about jumping in or if you go in you know if you dive into the sea or something like that because I know that when I when I throw myself in then I have to complete it yeah so what I end up with is lots of ideas that I kind of like. I hope I hold back from, mm. and they're just always there, dominant. They they chip away. Yeah. Because I know that when I start, I have to I have to finish it. I gave you an example in like you, like when I was a bit younger, like in the late nineties, mm. there was like one project that um, I started when I was at university. I wanted to make a film about Newcastle's music scene yeah music and club scene and like bands and things like that and I threw myself into this project without the first clue of how to make a film yeah I studied photography video and digital imaging yeah. and, it, and it wasn't it wasn't part of my studies but at Sunderland University at the time when I, where I was where I was studying where I was an undergraduate yeah but I lived in Newcastle I could just get access to all this amazing kit sure but I didn't know what I was doing and for about for about 18 months, two years, I would interview loads of people and I didn't know what it was that I was doing. Yeah. And you get to know loads of people and I I never finished this thing. Okay. I started it and I wouldn't even go back to it now because it, it was quite naive, but I was also quite naive at that time. Yeah. Filmmakers that I look up to, people like Werner Herzog and Nick Broomfield, I've always wanted to make like films or interview people that I like, I'm yeah. noser. And I want to throw myself into that kind of stuff. I've I've always wanted to do that. Okay. And I kind of part of that. I was like, what, early twenties. I threw myself into this thing, and I just absolutely burnt myself out. Mm. I think oh, since that point, I think there was a, there was a period. It was like about nineteen ninety eight to about two thousand and one. I was probably quite irritating <laughs> um, to some people. I got to know loads of people, and I'd lived in Newcastle for about six years up to that point. Yeah. And what I saw in the city, because it's an amazing place. I'm from Manchester originally. Yeah. But the size of the place and how it's connected, I just thought there was, there was a story there. And, I, yeah, I did meet loads of people. And it was like, and I was this lad who was making, oh, he's making a film about this. And then I didn't know what to do with all the stuff. And I, and I burnt myself out. And then 
I got myself into the position where every time I would go out, people would ask me about this thing, <laughs> and I just and I stopped going out for two for oh, two God. years. Like, but it that that kind of, you know, it was like it was it was just a naive, stupid project, but like that I'd threw myself into without any without any skill. You know, yeah. usually when you hear this story from a filmmaker or something, and it's like you know, Vern Herzog, Nick Broomfield have got you know nothing like them but they've got these stories where it's like oh yeah i just borrowed a camera and i just and you just do it just do it yeah and make it happen and this fight this this failed really like dramatically because i just and, I, and then i kind of i just kept avoiding it and that that fear has always stuck with me about about projects and then i kind of because when i throw myself into something like say doing club you know i promoted club nights for a long time yeah you just you get exhausted with it and it's like and, that, and that's I have that fear in me as well because all of a sudden that project that you're doing is just completely consuming mm. consumes everything <laughs> so uh, because I don't want to fail at something yeah which is quite I, th- I think about things differently now but there was for a long time there was this 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 idea of like failure uh, was like quite interesting and I thought with your unfinished and unpublished how that how that relate? Whether yeah. I don't know if anybody's talked about failure and stuff like that. I mean, not particularly explicitly, but I think it's often there implicitly because I think there is. I think there is this real thing of having an idea but putting it off in case it doesn't live up to what you want it to be, or in case you don't do it right, in case you don't finish it, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I, you're in no way alone. <laughs> I think in having that. So it was interesting there that you said that you you threw yourself into this film project when you were very young and you said that you're quite naive about it so presumably at that point you didn't kind of have the fear or was it just the case that you had it but you cared less because you were a bit younger I was just really I was really mad (laughs) like if you think that I talk like I can can talk quite a bit and I probably like hearing the sound of my own voice (laughs) um I I just had a, a ridiculous level of confidence okay oh there was no fear of failure because I just I just thought I could do I could do this. I I was I was a bit mad. Yeah. I've still got a lot of energy, but it's like I, I just had re- like ridiculous levels of like energy for like doing things. But it was only when I, I kind of because I was completely on my own without any skills. Yeah. And then it was just dawning I would start then the fear would increase of just like I can't I don't want to do this now. Mm. I I just want to leave it. I want to forget it and it's like and and I'm going out, and because of how small Newcastle is, I'm bumping into people going, "Oh, right, when when she when when oh," I, I then I started to realise it's like, oh, this is like, is this lad who wanted to make a film, and it was it's just another shitty thing, you know, it's just he's just some student, but it's good that though because, like a couple of years ago, again when I was doing this museum Transformers thing, I did a whole project about failure with this woman from Brighton Museums who worked in their trading stuff. She was part of the Transformers cohort. Yeah. And she was really interested in failure. And then at one of the Museums Association conferences, we were invited to do something about failure. I mean, we, we came up with this idea of a, fa- of a, of a confessional booth okay. for museum professionals. And, and we, got, we got my friend who's like a cognitive behavioural therapist to be in this confessional. Yeah. And people could go in and privately talk about their failures and stuff and it was very cathartic for people I bet. and actually 
what you start to realise as you get older that like failing at stuff's okay. Mm. You know, the pressures that we put ourselves under, like professional pride and all that kind of stuff, just gotta let it go. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like these things, there there's a mate who runs a record label in he lives in Zagreb now, but he's he's from uh, Leiden and around the Hague. And he said everything's just like a thin membrane of the cosmic onion. It's just all <laughs> it's all irrelevant. It's all meaningless. And once you realise that everything's meaningless, then that kind of frees you up quite mm. a bit. Like, it doesn't matter. People people forget about stuff. And it's just, it's, you know, they're all, they're all shitty projects. And once you realise that everything's, <laughs> ev- everything is irrelevant, then it just becomes a bit more fun. And then you start doing, you think you'll do something and it'll work really well. But, mm. but how, it's relative to what, successes you know what i mean is it about like fame or whatever or like you know do you want to be respected for what you do and have your name you know have a guardian yeah. article about you i mean i would i would fucking hate that <laughs> like to be you know i don't want to be Vern hurts go on it broomfield anymore i would i would hate that pressure and then where do you go after that yeah i love the idea of a confessional failure booth because i think everyone quote unquote fails at something at some point and we're not really taught how to deal with that, I don't think. I think, you, you, like you say, you really have to learn that that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's all like the thing that we did with TNT, which was a really, I think, over the last uh, like 10 years or something, that's been the most like, that was the most creative time. Mm. We weren't a cosy little crew of, all peop- of people who worked for the museum. Like we, we all became friends. The six of us who started it, and we didn't want it to be just a closed shop. The idea was that this collective grows bigger within the museum, and then all of a sudden, you've got you've got a way of working that's very different to a hierarchical structure. Yeah. Where, like, you know, you're valuing everybody's idea to, like, say, changing a place because museums are this like very rigid conservative institution. Yeah. Because it's all about keeping things safe and fixed. I was going to say something else there. <laughs> <laughs> oh michael he's very oh michael's very creative isn't he like that's you get like that i'm I'm just i feel that i mean this is probably a little bit of a confessional with the museum stuff but yeah. I mean, this isn't i'm not talking out of turn yeah this is stuff that i'll say openly yeah you know what i mean um but i think i'm just not listened to now yeah. <laughs> it's quite that's quite funny because that kind of original group of people who they didn't want to do the same things as me but it was about like pushing things and how do you come up with new things yeah you know i mean that was the idea like like tnt (laughs) um but like you know tnt and like is like an explosive as well because you want to kind of blow it up and start again sure because what i like about museums is that they kind of could be anything Mm. you've got all this stuff and they're about life yet why are they in my opinion so fixed in their interpretation of stuff this could be really exciting experimental public spaces to to really challenge things and like with um the psychic thing really there was a lot of there was a lot of fear about that yeah it's like what could happen but you know we considered it it's like the woman who was the psychic she just dealt with the objects she was not engaging with people we weren't we had a Q&A afterwards mm. we weren't advocating we weren't advocating occult data collection yeah. it was just kind of a bit of a joke yeah, yeah. you know but, um 
How did people react? We advertised it as this psychic event. Mm. And she, and the woman who was the psychic had a, has a big following. This kind of spiritualism sort of thing is yeah. very popular. It always has been. So she had an audience that kind of that came. But then you had a really mixed, you just got people who were interested in it, yeah. like or bemused or curious. And yeah. then we had 150 people on a Tuesday night. We made it was free, you know. We didn't. I wasn't going to charge for it, and she didn't want any money either, which was amazing. Yeah, yeah. But you know, because she obviously thought it would be good for her promotions. This this woman sure. struggled. She struggled. What was it like? I tell you, one of the other things that that influenced doing it mm. is that what I wanted it to be like. I wanted it to be like Ghost Watch, okay. which was this thing on the BBC, and I wrote about that a bit. And there's the guy who wrote and produced Ghost Watch who said that what they did with that. And your listeners can find out what that is, but like, don't need to go on about it. But the idea of like crafting the unexpected. Okay. This thing that we did, it wasn't scripted. It was, and it wasn't improvised because it was real. She's yeah. a she really believed, she really believes she's a psychic, and yeah. we brought objects out for her, and we presented it in a in a quite theatrical way, but not like vaudeville. Yeah. People didn't know if it was real or not. Yeah, I bet. So what you had is you had this audience of spiritualists who believed in that her fans. You had, and it was a really cross mix of ages. You had people who were artists that thought it was like a, a bit of performance art. Yeah. We got quite a bit of feedback, like extremely positive and negative as well. People were disappointed. People loved it. Some people were disappointed in the psychic. Okay. It wasn't dramatic. Okay. But the thing is, in the build up to it, so it was about a two hour event, you know, essentially like a theatre production. Yeah. And the way the Shipley looks, it's a very classical space, like uh, sort of late Victorian, yeah. early Edwardian space. And it was quite dramatic how we did it. And for about 45 minutes, Tim and John, who were doing the sound, were essentially the band. Okay. But we did it, but we wasn't promoted that they were the band. They were, we would view them as they were capturing sonic data. Sure. And they had lots of like, you know, they, were, they had lots of kit that made it look scientific. Tim had this thing that is like an old 80s, I forgot what he called it. But anyway, it was something that reacted to sound in the environment and create these like kind of oscilloscope images on the back screen. It was, it was, it looked brilliant. So like in terms of how people reacted, there was a lot of tension yeah. leading up to it because the 45 minutes before she came on, you had this kind of Tim and Jim, uh, John performing this sound, very ambient, yeah. very dark, very moody. And, there was a lot you could feel like the tension and like like what is going to happen people were pretty disappointed because she struggled with her psychic interpretation of the objects okay uh, like this parapsychology or whatever you know yeah. um and it was quite boring okay. <laughs> <laughs> but i love i loved that and i remember standing at the back and i couldn't believe what was happening yeah and uh, the woman who was the helen who was the senior manager responsible for kind of gates the gateshead museums and the shipley at the time she she just i remember turns from going she's retired now but i turned to went this is brilliant <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't have a she didn't she she didn't understand what was going on yeah so you have people really disappointed in the psychic because she was struggling because essentially she didn't have anyone like when she works with people she's essentially maybe some psychics are, are feeding off mm people in lots of different ways so she had nothing she only had her mind and what and her abilities to go off and maybe she struggled a bit yeah you had people in the audience there was a lot of people who'd come from a live action role play background 
who came and thought that it was a fake thing that we were doing yeah. and that something really mad was going to happen. Okay. There were these people, this whole group of them, and they emailed a really long feedback to me, and they were from a thing called Chaosism, which is this, like, gaming... It's like a live-action role-play gaming thing. And they, they thought that, you know, the psychic was going to start speaking in tongues or there was going to be something really scary was going to yeah. happen. People were anticipating that to be frightened. Yeah, yeah. And I think I I sort of wanted that to happen, but I couldn't force it. Yeah. Because it then would have it wouldn't have been it would have been a bit disingenuous yeah. or something, or might come across mm. as cheesy. Some people reacted and they said that what we'd created was a safe space to think about these things. Sure. Think about belief and think about uh meaning and objects like because we did the Q&A with Tim John myself uh Susan the psychic and we had a re- we had a really great a friend of mine called Mick who presented it who works for the live theater and he and he was brilliant and people couldn't believe that Mick was real yeah <laughs> which we was he was being Mick yeah. you know what I mean but he had he had such a presence about it somebody said that they thought it was like black mirror <laughs> or something like inside number 9 yeah, or like yeah. league of gentlemen or somewhere so yeah, that was that was good, but that was like, I don't know, you know, this was a finished project, but yeah. it was like, you know, where do you go from that? But then again, it was it was something that, like, seemed so impossible to do. Yeah. Like I'm on Twitter, I'm quite vocal on that when mm-hmm. it when it comes to museums, and I, I kind of I'm connected to quite a few big wig people, and I sort of be leading up to the event, I said, you know, was any museum ever <laughs> used a psychic? to collect data on objects and you know no nobody's done it because it is it's you know it, it's obviously highly disputed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a finished project but one of the unfinished projects that you sent me as a suggestion to talk about was um you had the idea of melting down collections of armaments in a museum and turning them into a metal record can you tell me about that where did that come from i think it's when you like I'm less angry now, but for a good period, I was just really, just really angry about how how museums work yeah. and how we view particular collections, especially when it comes to like war and conflict. And what I found, what I've observed over the last few years, is like a move towards, you know, I started in museums like about 2005, and what I've noticed over the last 15 years is just this move to like a kind of light jingoism and nationalism. Mm. And, you know, the peak of that was like uh, 2014 across the country. There was, um, there was a huge drive to commemorate and mark World War One. Yeah. And there was a lot of projects that I felt nationally that just would move, like just really mawkish and sentimental about war and World War One in particular. Yeah. And it made me really angry. And I remember I joked... This is it. Why I'm kind of, I'm not listened to now because I used to joke. I used to joke around quite a lot. Mm. I was <laughs> because I would joke around quite a lot. And I, I was just sort of dismissed, yeah. and I, I was basically not taken seriously. And I'm probably still not taken seriously, but that's all. That's okay. <laughs> but I, I'd kind of see all this stuff to do with war and everything, and I, and I just remember saying, like, kind of in anger at some point, I said, "You know what? Let's get." Just want to get all the, all the armaments that we've got in the collections mm. and just melt them down. Just melt them into this other thing. And my kind of my original idea is that we'll melt them into a big, big metal ball, yeah. and we'll fire it from a cannon into the sea. I mean, like ideas like that. I mean, they're, they're not 
they're like ten a penny. Ideas are ten a penny. Nothing's original. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, and a few people, colleagues who I work with, it's like, oh, oh, it's like you're an artist, isn't it? But you're working in the museum, and I, I like, I just want us to push the possibilities yeah. of stuff. But anyway, there's an eye. Like we do have lots of things, and and there are armaments in our collections and stuff. But it, it's like, yeah, this is an unrealized idea, and it'll never be realized. Mm. Not, not from me anyway. Because because of what I understand about the processes of like how collections work yeah. and how much work it would take, and I haven't got the energy to like push it. But the idea, like people will have done something like this. These kind of ideas are the preserve of like artist commissions that come yeah. in. You know, you'll get a very famous artist that will come in and work with the museum, and it's like they'll have this idea, and then because of the fame that's attached to their name, people will make it happen, and yeah. it's generally you know like a process. Yeah. But if like you know, if I wanted to get like an Armstrong, Lord Armstrong was a big war profiteer, arms manufacturer, big in the arms industry, you know, donated Jesmond Dean to Newcastle. Yeah. You know, get some of his shells that are in our collection, melt them down, turn them into, I kind of then thought, because I've, because I've done stuff within the record label industry and like pressed vinyl, yeah. it's like, you know, we'll just make a, me- a metal lathe cut record that you can play. Yeah. And why don't we fill it with interviews of, people who've experienced war mm. from both sides, mm. like civilians or military, people are seeking refuge. And also it really, it, it's kind of like very similar to that idea, you know, the Voyager spacecraft, is a good, there's, a, there's a gold record on the Voyager mm. spacecraft that's got the sounds of Earth. So the idea is kind of yeah. linked to that. Yeah, yeah. And that was like, you know, you come up with an idea and you realise it's like, oh, that's obviously influenced this idea. Yeah. But I'm quite generous with my ideas. So, you know, if people... You know, this this stuff's ten a penny. <laughs> so these ideas, like they sort of like dormant, and they're always they're always there. Yeah, and it's like they're in, you know, on little notebooks or, you know, notepads on my MacBook. Or whatever. Sure. It's like here's an idea, and you can kind of, you know, why why don't I do it? Maybe I'm quite lazy, really lazy, because I know that when I I I commit to start doing something, yeah, it'll consume all my energy. So th- there's that fear as well, mm. because. Like that thing at the end of me at the end of me university studies that 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 film project yeah. I, I got you know it it triggered a bit of a depression sure. and it was like and that was quite there's that fear as well yeah that it's like you know your energy gets sparked and it's like you know I don't sleep yeah <laughs> so so I'm mindful of that mindful of my own health <laughs> and stuff um, but it is it's a it's a it's a good idea the gold disc thing because it's like then. It ties into that stuff about preservation as well. Yeah. Like for me with ideas, if somebody, I'm not precious about them. Mm. And it's like when I used to release music, like there was a lot of unfinished stuff with a record label that sort of chips away and irritates me because that mm. was a project that I couldn't maintain. Yeah. Because it was just draining money okay. and and my time and stuff like that. And there's still music with, with the record label that I did, which is called which is was is <laughs> called 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 signals. Yeah. There's still there's still music that I was given that was like unreleased. Yeah. And it just it just chips away, but as the years go on, it just it just becomes more distant or something. And then it's like, why is it worth revisiting? Is there something in particular about an unfinished project that would maybe make you go back to it to to overcome the fear of starting it or you know, starting it up again? Sometimes I think with me, I think you'll get an idea 
and you've kind of seen it through in your head and that's as good as actually doing it mm. and I don't need to do it now because I've visualized it or something that's interesting say like for example and you know this has happened where I've wanted to do a release and then somebody sent me music and then I've got a remix for something and then I've just been slack or slow doing it yeah and say maybe the artist has got back in touch and said you know I'm just going to do it with these people Whereas in the early days, I'll have been a bit funny about it or like, oh my God, I've lost something. Yeah. Now I would just think, oh great, somebody's going to release, somebody's going to put it out there. Sure. Because these things are all like, with the record label, it's such a small cottage industry thing. It was really just about putting out artwork. It's like, like I mean, artwork in the broadest sense mm. that you're releasing something out there physically mm. or even digitally or whatever, but you, you're throwing that thing out for people to enjoy. And you enjoy it as well, and you enjoy making that thing. Yeah. But if somebody else is going to do it, and if they're going to do it better than you, then that's brilliant. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like with me and my mates, when we used to organise club nights quite regular, we sort of did that because there was nowhere for us to go. Yeah. But if somebody hit somebody else was doing that night and having those acts and DJs and playing that music, then great. Yeah. Know, we don't have to do it. Yeah. Brilliant. So, it's taking the ego out of it isn't it a little bit like yeah it's about like like general like you know doing stuff at the star and shadow yeah the generosity yeah i'm not asked about ownership and stuff like that i mean maybe like if somebody just completely i mean like this unfinished unpublished thing mm. in some of your other interviews it's all about it's like, like you know maybe some people are a bit uncomfortable about talking about ideas that haven't happened yeah. about somebody yeah, will, yeah somebody will nick their idea I remember there was a project, I won't give any specifics to it, but there was a thing years and years ago that was quite a large, I'm not even going to say if it was in the northeast, but it was like, it was okay. a large festival. And we had an idea about bringing a famous writer and a famous musicians together, mm -hmm. me and someone else who had a bit more clout than me, mm. started conversations with some organisations about it. Okay. And then nothing happened with it. Mm. And then a couple of years later, the thing that was ours was just done. Okay. Somebody did some just took it from it, took it and just did it. I think that was the last time I felt anger like about that. But then you let it then it doesn't matter. You let it go. It's like, you know what, actually, they fucking did it. And oh they they maybe done it differently. Yeah. But it's like I remember kind of after that point I started being a bit more like generous and stuff like that, thinking, you know what, it doesn't matter. You can you can get into these like beefs with people, but life's too short. Yeah. And also Newcastle and North East is is like too small. You've mentioned a couple of times about like art in like a really broad sense. And you said that you had colleagues who described you as an artist working in a museum. And I was struck when I was listening to, talk to you talk about some of your museum stuff, that it does seem quite artistic. And I wondered if you personally would distinguish between a museum exhibit, for example, and like an art installation. It seems like they can be quite similar. So I'm not, I'm not bothered about, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of going on record now and I've applied for certain jobs like recently, but I yeah. don't care. But um, <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not interested in the contemporary art world. I'm interested in good projects that work with people in new ways and, yeah. and help people or present a different view of the world. Yeah. You know, I started in the museum in 2005. And then before that, I started off studying fine art at Sunderland. I sort of, went back to the start and started doing photography. I kind of dropped out of the first year of fine art because I fucking hated it. Mm. Um, and then I kind of, and then I started on photography and there was something about that that I really liked. Yeah. And then when I graduated, I was doing stuff where you kind of, 
oh, it's Michael, he's a photographer, he's an artist, mm. he's doing stuff, and you would go to like gallery openings and things like that, and, and like meet different people and and just be part of like that kind of scene. And I didn't like it at all. Mm. I just I thought a lot of it was just a load of crap. Okay. Um, and then, and what I was doing, I was just I was I was doing things that at the time people would describe it. Oh, is this, oh, you have a socially engaged practice. Right, yeah. Like they talk, they'd use that kind of language. Never imagined that I would work in a museum. But what had happened is that having a kind of like free, you know, a period where I was freelance for, for quite uh, a couple of years and I was just absolutely terrible at managing my finances, just awful. Mm. And uh, I needed a job. <laughs> um, and I kind of, you know, seeing, I saw, I remember seeing the job advertised at the museum and when I was paying my council tax at Newcastle Civic Centre and I just went for it and I didn't even spend that much time on the application yeah. and I got the job. It was coordinating a gallery, a Discovery Museum at the, at the time was called the People's Gallery and what that was about was about working with groups of people and facilitating, helping them, helping groups of people put on their own exhibitions and stuff. And I kind of a lot of things that I'd been doing before that had been around like objects and people and archive photographs and things like that because I'd studied photography a period of about three years. I was freelance, but I did an MA as well. The result of that MA was that I couldn't be, I didn't want to take photographs anymore. I remember there was a specific incident with me and my mate were driving somewhere down the M1 and um I had a digital camera. It was like early days of like digital cameras, you know, when you had like one one meg, one megabyte or something like that of of data on your phone on your camera. And I started photographing every truck that went past us on the on the M1. I was like, oh, this is this is this would be a yeah. cool project. Like every truck that passes us from this point of view. I remember kind of like doing it and like, oh, this could be like a piece yeah. of work. And I remember coming across like some Fiden photography book, and I can't remember the photographer's name. But somebody somebody done in the seventies exactly the same thing, where it was like every every truck on some highway in California, and it looked exactly the same as what I'd done. Yeah. So I didn't need to do it. I was like, oh great, he's done it. That person's done it. So that was like a whole kind of change that I was more interested in, like like organizing walks with people or coach tours or or just doing something that would expand out of like just doing a fixed gallery exhibition mm. or something that's kind of static and I kind of brought all that stuff into the museum and then I you know I, I was just interested in just interested in meeting people I really I really like interviewing people I really like talking to people and bringing people together I forgot what your question was Emma it was it was something about art and is there a difference between art and a museum exhibition essentially I don't even think about it like now to at this point now I think yeah the story I was trying to tell was this this like you know, so I've been part of a scene in the kind of nineties and early two thousand or, or early two thousands of like, let's say, contemporary art scene in Newcastle or whatever or the northeast, and then I just sort of moved away from it, and I was just yeah. I just see them as things and projects. I was working in collaboration with the museum with loads of community groups in the West End, and we were doing a, a, a kind of it was called West End Stories. This was like a few years ago, and I was using all the same skills and processes of promoting a club night with doing this thing where, where you know I'm kind of designing flyers and posters and and it's like the same process but it was interesting there was when was it it might have been about 2000 
10-ish, I was at some party that was like an art thing and it reminded me of those like old, the old mm. days of like sort of kicking around with artists. And I was doing all this stuff like, I was doing these things that were interesting and they were in, and artists were looking at them in, in like the Northeast. I remember this kid came up to us and said, oh, do you think, do you, do you think you're an artist now? And I was just, it was just some really like snidey thing. But I remember 15 years ago, I probably would have had a fight with him. Because <laughs> I was so. Yeah. I, <laughs> I can see why. <laughs> and I just remember, like, yeah. I, I just remember not saying anything. I just thought, oh, well, you know, if you want to think that. I don't even remember like reacting in any particular way. But it's nice. It's, it's good getting older. I'm chilling out a bit. <laughs> so, yeah. I just realised before we started recording that I think there might be another unfinished project that I'm aware of with you, which was, you know, the Halloween hypno- hypnosis thing? Oh, God, yeah. That, Did that yeah. happen? That didn't happen, right? I didn't. I don't want to reveal too much about it because okay. if we do do it, it's like, not that I'm doing anything sneaky. The Beyond the Museum, Mick, who was the host of that, the Shipler, yeah. he's, he's really good and he's into a lot of this, like, he's a sceptic. He's like an agnostic when it comes to like para, you know, parapsychology or like psychic stuff, and I and I'm like I I don't believe in it any of it, but it but it's like who's that writer who wrote Hawksmoor? What's he called? Peter Ackroyd. There was some interview with him on the radio years ago, and, and they were talking about ghosts, and yeah. he's got there's a quote from him that says, "Oh, I don't believe in ghosts, but they frighten me." Oh my god, I'm exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. um, so like you know when I did that psychic thing at the Shipler, yeah, the lead up to that. Like, you know, where everybody's sat down and it's all this weird sound and, and she's getting ready to come on. It started to frighten. I started to feel a bit frightened by it. Yeah. I come from like a, a Catholic background. I'm not practicing mm. Catholic, but I come from a Catholic background. Yeah. And um, there was part of me that was like my mother's voice, like, you know, you're messing with things you don't understand. <laughs> and, and there's that fear, you know what I mean? Um, so... From the bond beyond the museum, it's like uh, how because like a lot of friends said we'd be on the museum, so you you need to take this on tour, okay? Go to different museums and like just do do this with a different psychic in a different place. Yeah, that's an unfinished thing that I need to I need to kick myself up the ass with that. But I think I'm less bothered about it now because it's in a way I've kind of done it. Like I don't need to do that again. Now the thing with the Halloween and being hypnotized is that mm. I wanted yeah because I put I really stupid quick call out people like oh yeah oh no yeah and you said you were up for it as well so what i wanted to do is um do a past life regression with some with someone and mick would host it mick knew knows someone who does that kind of thing and had a conversation with them and then i started to get a bit worried about it so it was the idea that you would take people through a past life regression and you would do it live yeah and maybe they would like something unexpected would happen. It does sound quite spooky. Yeah, you do that. You do this live, and maybe you, and you craft it in a particular way yeah. that, that could frighten people. But then a couple of friends that I've got who are, are very clever friends and also mindful of the risks of this kind of stuff. Mm. That it's like with past life regression, it it's quite dodgy. <laughs> okay. You know, there'll be people that believe it. Yeah. That believe that you're being you're being regressed into into a past life. I'd have to do it in a way that was like safe for people. What me and Mick talked about is that actually, I I need to do it. Okay. And I didn't want to do it because I was frightened of doing it. 
and then I was putting it out there. What, what can happen with the wrong kind of like hypnosis can implant false memories in people. Oh, right. Okay. Imagine like two train of thoughts of looking at past life regression. There'll be people believe that you are going back into a past life. Yeah. And there'll be people that don't believe it. And maybe you would look at it as actually what you're doing is it's just actually quite a creative thing. Mm. Like to so say with someone who was going to go through it, if you said to them, it's not real, really all it is is hypnosis and you're making these things up, you know, getting them to understand that, then that's okay. So it's like creating a safe space yeah. because say what could happen? You could get a hypnotherapist. I won't say hypnotist because that's like a different thing. That's like sort of vaudeville, isn't it? Or sure. something. But you could start implanting things in people. Okay. Yeah, it can be dodgy because it's like say say if you really believe that you're going into a past life and then you're describing something that you've not experienced in your actual life mm. and then you've created it in your own mind and then you come out of hypnosis and it was something horrible and you you've well you've you feel like you've experienced it yeah. for real. Okay. It's like that you know what I mean? So maybe you're not so keen on that, <laughs> it now. Like um so you know, but like like on a really serious point, it's like you have somebody that's asked ask the wrong leading questions yeah. and it's documented this stuff where people undergo hypnotherapy and all of a sudden, I mean, it's like stuff to do with like abuse or mm. things like that, where it's like you've experienced, you know, you implant ideas into people. Yeah. It's quite dodgy. So if, if that's going to happen, past life thing, I need to do it. Like Mick's encouraging me to do it, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not so sure. <laughs> like even if I was to fake it, I would still probably have to get myself into a hypnotic state, which is something that I haven't done. Yeah. I would have to pretend to be in a hypnotic state, which would mean I would be pretty much having to hypnotise myself. So anyway, yeah, there was that idea. And then, you know, one of the things that museums do when they when they want to, like, engage with people or involve people is they do what's called object handling sessions where sure. you'll bring a community group in and it's like, oh, look at these old, these old things, you'll bring them out, people can touch it. Yeah. Now, what if you hypnotised curators to tell us about the history of those objects? Oh, cool. Okay. See, that's, that's, that wouldn't be like past life regression, but they would be in a hypnotic state. And like people hypnotised, it's like you'd be accessing creative stuff that you didn't think about yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. And I quite like the idea of a, a like almost, not vaudeville shock, schlocky, but like, a load of curators on a stage, hypnotised, yeah. and you hand them an object and they tell you what it is. And it would be an object without any provenance. I think that's got a bit of... That's another that's another unrealised thing yeah. that I would love to see happen. But I just don't know if I've got the energy... I, I don't know if I've got the energy for pushing museums to try and do these things. Because doing the psychic thing, we, we made it quick quickly. It, it happened but there was a lot of hoops to jump through mm. and it was quite exhausting. The melting down the collections I know would be a nightmare because this, yeah. there's a whole process when it comes to what you call deaccessioning objects. So essentially what I would be doing is deaccessioning the armaments mm. and then melting them. But then it, the questions that it raises with that is like the fundamentals of those objects. Like, you know, you, you bring, you're pulling objects down to so it's like elemental level. Yeah. I think that's pretty interesting. But a lot of... Remember, I'm not saying I'm better than other museum pe people. They There's people just think differently. Yeah. You know what I mean? They have amazing skills that I don't have that, that help me a lot with projects. But some people, they just they just look at me like bemused <laughs> with that. 
they just think like, you know, you're not taking this seriously. This is serious work, Michael, and you're not. You obviously don't care about history, <laughs> which I've said loads of times just to wind up people. It's like, oh, I don't care about, I don't care about the past. <laughs> um, okay, I'm aware I've been talking for a while. Yeah, you've got a bit of an edit here. I have got a bit of an edit. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to cover? I know we've not talked about Ken Campbell when you mentioned Ken Campbell. Well, I can really quickly talk. Like his, that was after doing the Saltwell Park Museum Gallery, which is like in my museum life, Yeah, is the biggest thing that I've ever done. I only became aware of Ken Campbell and what he was doing like after it and all like the KLF stuff as well. Like I was reading that book at the same time. Like it didn't influence what I was doing. But then like afterwards you start thinking about what you're doing and it's like, oh wow, that's really like this. And, and he's like a theatre guy, yeah. raconteur, whatever. And he he just said if he he said to Bill Drummond, it's, it's like a famous thing that Bill Drummond from the KLF always talked about. And it and he was like mentoring Bill Drummond and loads of others in the early eighties. And he just said if you know if you're going to do something like just make it heroic. There's no point in doing anything otherwise. What does that mean? Make it heroic. I think that it's like anything's pos- like like anything's possible. Okay. And I kind of, I did a group thing a few years ago, like it was part of this TNT thing. And I kind of joked that it's like, if we wanted to, we could, we could eat the shipley. We could ground, <laughs> we could ground, we could, imagine that you powdered the shipley, right? So it's a, it's a building made of concrete wood and loads of other stuff and all its collections. Yeah. It's like the stuff with the armaments. Imagine if you just demolished it mm. and then, and turned it all into a powder. It's like all the paintings, the building. And imagine if you wanted to do it with just a spoon, then, that, then that's like, that's possible. It would take a very long time, but it's possible. Yeah. That, that to me would be a heroic project. And then you would just, you would hand it out to everybody in Gateshead, like a quarter of a teaspoon of it. <laughs> and then they could put it in their tea and, and drink it. And okay, there might be trace poisons in there or whatever, but it would be negligible. <laughs> They, they would they would have a choice whether they wanted to drink it or not. But you know, I'm a smoker, so like having <laughs> having a quarter of a teaspoon of the, of the Shipley Art Gallery in its collections in powder form <laughs> is not going to affect my health too much, given the amount of shit that I've put in my lungs <laughs> over the last twenty years. That's a heroic thing. Ken Campbell talked like having a phone. I can contact anyone in the world with this, and you can just make stuff happen, mm. and it, and they'll fail. But it's like, and that's the whole thing about like nothing being impossible until you until you try and do it. Mm. And Steve McQueen, the filmmaker, uh, this was when he was more like within contemporary art and that. Mm. He said, you know, all you need is a, is a phone, a pad, and a pen, <laughs> and you can get, and you can get stuff done. <laughs> <laughs>